My mother was a woman of tremendous integrity. My mother was curious, protective, unflappable, loyal, complicated, powerful, honest, lyrical. She is devoted, resilient, dazzling, giving, extraordinary. She wrung from the life she had the most pleasure possible. It was an inspiration to me. It sustained me as a way of living. This is Our Mothers Ourselves, and I'm your host, Katie Hafner. I've known Sherry Turkle for a long time, first from a professional distance. I was an early tech reporter in the 80s, and I was writing articles about her, what I can only describe as mind-blowingly prescient work about computers and their effect on human connection. Over the years, we became friends, but it wasn't until I read Sherry's memoir, The Empathy Diaries, that I began to really understand who Sherry Turkle is and why. The book just came out, and reviewers are gushing about it. In the New York Times, Dwight Garner called it a beautiful book, intellectually ambitious, but also drilling down into the things that make a life. I wanted to talk to Sherry about her mother, Harriet Bonowitz Turkle, who died much too young. Harriet is as central to the themes running through the Empathy Diaries as she was to her brilliant daughter's life. Sherry Turkle, thank you so much for coming on to Our Mothers Ourselves to talk to me about your mom. It's a pleasure. It's really a pleasure. You know, uh, you said something after our tech check, which was that just seeing your mother's name was emotional for you, just seeing that we had named our Squadcast session Harriet Turkle. Tell me, what, what was that all about? Well, when I wrote my book, I was so nervous because my mother was everything to me. And mourning my mother and figuring out how to mourn my mother was such a complicated presence in my life. I'm, I'm still doing it in so many ways. And writing my book, I couldn't do it until I found a way to both honor her and acknowledge the complexities of our relationship. And seeing her name there, Harriet Turkle, just independent of me on a screen, it had just the most extraordinary effect on me. It just, I was Mm -hmm. quite overwhelmed and grateful grateful to you, grateful to the podcast. I was, I was, I was really so happy. So what I'd like to do to start off is ask you, if you were to describe your mother using just one word, what would that word be? Charismatic. Mm. Sounds like you had no trouble coming up. No, she filled every moment with life. You know, she she hid her dying from me. She hid her illness from me. She had metastatic breast cancer, and she didn't want me to know because she wanted me to live my dream of going away to college. And she knew that that if I knew this, she I wouldn't. You know, I would stay at home and go to, to Brooklyn College or some college in the city. And people say, how could she do that? And it was because she she infused her life with joyfulness, with, you know, let's go shopping. And she would make it into an adventure, laughing. And, you know, even when she was dying, and I didn't know it, but mysteriously, she needed to stay in bed and recuperate, she said, from pneumonia. And we watched old movies, uh, you know, lying in my childhood bed, curled up and 
eating chicken soup. Uh, We had fun. She wrung from the life she had the most pleasure possible, and it it was an inspiration to me. It sustained me as a way of living. Well, let, let's dial back to the beginning of her life. Where was she born? Where did she grow up? She was born in Brooklyn in 1918. She died in 1968. She was 49. She was born in a one-bedroom apartment. My grandparents always and always lived in a one-bedroom apartment. She, she went to Brooklyn public schools when, if you were smart, you skipped grades. She just was out in the working world by 16 or 17. She began work as a as a kind of office administrator. Where was that? In Brooklyn, working, I think, in a, in a place that manufactured uh, clothing mm-hmm. in downtown Brooklyn near the DeKalb Avenue station. I always used to love the DeKalb Avenue station because she told me that that was where her first job was. And I just imagine my young mother coming out of that station, just happy to be part of the world of working people, alive and beautiful and healthy and strong. My mother was tall and beautiful. It bothered her that she was six feet tall or grazing six feet tall. And she always went to the um, Division of Motor Vehicles and would try to get each year the ladies at the Division of Motor Vehicles to shave a few inches off her height <laughs> so that so that she would be shorter on her official papers because she apparently the ladies at the Division of Motor Vehicles knew that it wasn't good to be six feet if you were a unmarried lady. By the time I saw her license at the time of her death, I think she had herself down to five six, which was <laughs> completely, <laughs> completely absurd. And then she kept also like shaving years off her age. So she she stayed at kind of 29 when she married uh, her first husband, which I guess we'll get to, who was my father. She was 27, but she wasn't. She was 29. And then when she married five years later, when she married uh, her second husband, she was 29. She just bended the truth where she thought it would be convenient to bend the truth. And the truth bent to her. And the truth bent to her. Apparently, this was not hard to do. I mean, it was it was really, in some areas, it was funny. And then, of course, I guess we'll talk about how in my life, and in, in some areas, this, this kind of casual relationship with the truth uh, turned out to be not so funny. Mm-hmm. So we're in the Depression. Yes, we're in the Depression. And how old was she when she met your father? She was living with your grandparents. Yes, she was living with my grandparents. And um, I, by her count, she was 27. But let's see, it was 1947. So she was 30, 29. And she said she was 27 uh-huh. when she married Charles mm-hmm. Zimmerman. So walk me through what happened. Well, my mother had, I learned from my grandmother, a kind of uh, love affair during the war before she met my father. And it hadn't worked out. And she wanted very much to be married. You know, it was to her, it was a great shame to to not be married. But more than that, my grandfather was a very difficult man. And there were constant fights in the house. She had a, a sister who was older than she by two years, Mildred Bonowitz. And um, the two sisters were very close, but very different. 
my 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 aunt Mildred was very intellectual and very uh, very principled, and my my aunt my aunt Mildred would never shave any years off her age or never lie about her height, <laughs> and uh, would never you know was not was just very different from my mom. But anyway, she she really wanted to get out of living with my grandparents, and she wanted to have her own family, and she wanted to be kind of just uh, Brooklyn normal. I think was what my mother aspired to. She wanted to, you know, have a husband and a house or a lovely apartment. And she met a, a man who was a chemist at a dance, despite the fact that my mother had been sweet on someone else very earlier. It hadn't worked out. And she agreed to marry him, although she was anxious about it because his parents were very religious and uh, very kosher. And my mother typically uh, had a kind of Scarlett O'Hara attitude towards it, which is I'll worry about that tomorrow. She just kind of put off the reckoning with the fact that she was clueless about how to maintain a Jewish home or how to do the kosher laws. She just figured she would do what her mother had done, which was not mix milk and meat and not eat bacon. But in fact, Charles Zimmerman, who she married, his parents used to come and inspect her cupboards and found them wanting because, you know, there are all kinds of things you're supposed to do if you're really kosher. And it really goes far beyond not just having little bacon around the house. And she had, she was clueless. Mm -hmm. So she had taken this on very lightly and was sort of surprised to find that both her husband and her husband's family were kind of holding her to it. So I think there was a lot of conflict in the marriage, I learned later. And um, uh, so I don't think it was a peaceful marriage. Uh, and then I learned nothing more about the marriage until much later. I just know that all of a sudden we weren't living with my father anymore. Of course, I don't really remember that. My earliest memories are we're living with my grandparents in this one bedroom apartment with my aunt and mm -hmm. I'm my aunt and my grandmother you know, from the time I'm one year old, I'm given no information about why my situation has changed. I'm not allowed to speak my father's name, Charles Zimmerman, but that name falls completely out of the lexicon. I only kind of learn it later. And I, the first time I see it, I see it written in a book that I find in a closet, and I know that it's a taboo name. And then I see a picture that must be, I imagine, my father, but his head is cut out of it. And I'm just treated as a person with no name, really. I'm just part of the Bonowitz clan until my mother remarries, and I'm told that even though in school, legally, I have to sign my name Sherry Zimmerman, I am to say that my name is Sherry Turkle. When she remarries. When she remarries, mm -hmm. because no one is to know that my mother was married before, so I become the holder of my mother's secrets. So let's back up for a sec. Well, it doesn't seem that the kosher, non-kosher thing would be reason enough to blot him out 
after leaving him? Why, why the break? Why the clean break? Well, I tell the story that way because I try to tell it given what little information I had until I'm 35 years old and find my father and learn the truth. Literally 30 years later, after she's dead, I embark on a quest to find my father. So I keep her secret. It was her, it was her greatest wish that no one know, and particularly my sister and brother, not know that I was not there true, that we were not one family, that I was not a Turkle. And ultimately, Milton Turkle adopts me. So I'm trying to tell the story as I experienced it as a child and tell the story with the intensity of how she wanted this secret kept. Mm. And I later learn that one day when I was one year old, she came home from shopping and found Charles Zimmerman doing experiments on me, the kind of experiments like Skinnerian experiments, like Mm -hmm. leaving me alone in a room and not talking to me. Let's just explain for listeners what a Skinnerian experiment would be. Well, kind of doing, doing experiments on a young child to see, you know, treating me as an an experimental object on which you could do behavioral experiments to see how the child would respond. Experiments that now would be completely, uh, that that are abhorrent, Mm -hmm. that are frightening to think of doing on children, but that were something that my biological father, Charles Zimmerman, thought we're in a tradition of experimenting on children to learn the nature of the child. And I only found out about these because when my, way long after my mother died, I hired detectives and tracked down my father, whose identity had been hidden from me. I knew only his name. And in the Empathy Diaries, I sort of describe my process and fits and starts of tracking down my father. And when I find him, he proudly describes these experiments and how he considered us scientists together and how when my mother caught him at these experiments, which mostly, as far far as I could tell, mostly consisted of, you know, putting me in a dark room. And if I cried, I had to stay there. She was horrified. And his response when she finds him at these experiments, he offers her co-authorship <laughs> on the papers he's going to write. Oh my God, he's, he was crazy. Well, he was in his way, but you know, he yeah. was also charming and he was also wonderfully educated and he was also, um, you know, I can see how when she met him, he had, you know, we had a master's degree in chemistry, and he was probably the best educated person she had ever met. But she did see this. But and then she, she did, sees it. And she got you out and of there. She, just, she called my Aunt Mildred, and she said, pick me up. She put a couple of our possessions in brown paper bags, and she, she leaves them. Mm. She just leaves them. She saved you. She saved me. And but, she must she must also have sworn your aunt and your grandparents yes, to secrecy. Yes, everyone was sworn to silence. But 
I understand, you know, and, and in the book, I try to work my way back to fundamentally, she saved me. You know, she put me into a world of complication, but a world where I could talk my way out of the complication. I could interpret the complication. And so as you were growing up, did she encourage you to get a great education? My thinking, Sherry, is that she must have been really just a brilliant woman. She was a very brilliant woman. And she definitely encouraged me to get a great education. I remember writing away to Harvard and saying, how do you go to Harvard? And Harvard wrote back to me and said, well, you can't go to Harvard, but you can go to Radcliffe. I wrote away to Radcliffe. They sent me back a book. I remember looking at the Radcliffe book and just saying, I want to go to Radcliffe. And I remember showing this book to my mother and saying, I I want to go to Radcliffe. So, but anyway, that was what I determined I was going to do, no matter how hard that was. And my mother knew that's what I wanted to do. And I, and that's what I had to do. And I, and she just, I was going to do that. And despite the fact that I'm sure it would have been a comfort to her to have me near her, we were so close. She was not going to let me know that she was ill. And that brought me a lot of heartache later because I think the complexity of my story and what I try to write about is that I think I knew without knowing that she was ill. And I think there are a lot of things that we know without knowing, kind of lies we tell ourselves, things we allow ourselves not to see. But I didn't see what she didn't want me to see. In a sense, I obeyed her direction to be blind to this thing she didn't want me to see. Did you ever have a sense that you were living, she was living her life through you? Yes, I did. mm -hmm. And also, um, she would ask me to do things. A A lot of our conflict was she had a kind, we had a kind of fusional relationship where I think because she was making this sacrifice for me and because she was living her life through me, she would ask me to do things that I began to realize felt inappropriate and only began to shake off, try to get away from when she was close to death and then never really had a chance to work through with her because I began to rebel and then she was dead. So that was a lot, that was a lot to deal with. Like for example, because she was so ill when she was close to death and taking so much medication, she asks me to write a paper for her about Les Palperies de Cherbourg, the bell, the umbrellas of Cherbourg. She was studying. She, she was, was studying. She was mm-hmm. taking a course on French youth. Remember being at Radcliffe and writing this paper and not wanting to write this paper and just feeling, why, why am I writing my mother's papers? Is this like okay? I mean, is this like nothing? I mean, mothers ask all kinds of things from their children, but this doesn't feel, I don't want to do this. And she, and yet she, she needed to pass this course to keep her job and she was foggy. And my aunt writes me a letter 
saying, really encode your your mother's dying, write the fucking paper. And only after my mother's death am I able to read my aunt's letter and realize what the letter says. Because I was so intent on not learning the truth about my mother. You didn't know she was dying. Right. And, but oh I God. knew, but see, that's what's interesting. And I think that there was so much to unpack and learn from that there are some things we know, but we can't say. We know them, but we're not aware that we know them. And that's really what I learned from my experience with my mother that there really is a great deal in life that we know, but we don't know. Because when I was called back shortly after my mother, asks me to write this paper. I'm called back to Brooklyn and my mother is in the hospital. And I'm, I come to the hospital and I'm, I walk in and I go to my mother's side and I'm still not with the program. I mean, I'm thinking my mother has pneumonia. I'm told my mother has pneumonia. I once had a friend that has pneumonia and I ask the doctor, I walk right up to the doctor and I said, how long is she how long is she going to be here? And he says, I, I, I think two weeks. And, and I said, well, why so long? Mm. And he looks at me like stunned because he realizes that I don't know, or do I know? Or, or is he supposed to be the one who tells me? And all of a sudden, I know everything. I know that the two weeks isn't until she goes home. I know that the two weeks is until she dies. And then I realize the the the, the sort of the impossible, which is that this isn't new information, that I sort of know this. And she also didn't want you sitting around watching her die. Yeah, that's amazing. So let me uh, interrupt you for a sec. There's a story you tell in the book about a hairpin. Yes. The hairpin story is a story of, I think, of an example of, you know, of my... My love for my mother was so intense. We were so close. But basically, I was angry at her all my life because she had taken my father away. I didn't have theories about why I was so angry, but I just, I wasn't even allowed to talk about why I was angry because we didn't even, weren't allowed even to talk about the fact that she had been married before. All of this was kind of like in a, a completely taboo realm. So I was very angry at her, but it couldn't come out directly. And so it came out in, I guess I would call them indirect cruelties. You could get fancy and say these were unconscious things that came out, but let's just call them indirect cruelties. We go to Radcliffe for my interview. So this is something that together uh, has been our dream. Let's say she was living through me and we had together dreamt about this since I was in junior high school. So now I'm 17 years old. So I started early and we're at Dean Elliott's office, who was the Dean of Admissions at Radcliffe. And uh, the idea is we go in together to see Dean Elliott and then I'm going to see Dean Elliott alone. And we had gone up the night before and we'd stayed at the Sheraton Commander and this, I, I can't tell you what a big deal this was. And my mother had a giant bouffant hairdo. And this was 
a giant hairdo. So first it was washed and set with a kind of beer-like substance and put on giant rollers. Then it was dried on the rollers. Then it was teased. Then it was patted into place. Then it was sprayed. Then it was patted and resprayed. And then clips were put in all around it to kind of sculpt it into this kind of swirling helmet. And my mother slept on these clips that would keep it in this very swirling shape. It was it was really a quite amazing thing. And she had kept it in this form. We'd, we'd come up to Radcliffe on Friday, and this form had been kept by these steely clips um, until we went to see Dean Elliott. And I wasn't yet a woman enough of the world to know that at Radcliffe, people didn't wear hairdos like this. People had oh, simple painful. New England bobs. Right. Yes. <laughs> but in right. the Radcliffe life, nobody had clips and nobody had helmets. And Dean Elliott had like a, a tousled bob of New England. In we go. In we go to the, to the interview. But my mother felt very beautiful and she was all dressed up and corseted and wearing her A&S dress, Brooklyn. And she was just all made up and we were so proud. And it was such a proud moment for her. I'm sure it was one of the proudest moments of her life. And then after the interview, as we leave the interview, I say to her, Mommy, one of the clips was in your hair when we went in to see Dean Elliott. It wasn't an unintentional cruelty. It was really a cruelty. It was a, it was a taking away from her mm-hmm. that moment of participation, of feeling that she was part of my world, of feeling that she was successfully part of my world, that she'd been in that. And it was, I, I was thinking of how to describe it when I was writing about it. It was so hard to describe. I took it out of the book five times because it, because it's so, you know, it's me at my worst. I mean, it's showing me, it, you know, it's showing me do something. So I, the worst thing I've, it feels like the worst thing I've ever done. And at the end, I say, you know, if I could have one do over in life, this would be it. And I'm a woman who's had divorces. I'm a woman who's made a lot of mistakes. And yet I say, if I could have one do over in my life, this would be my moment. How would you do it over? I would say, Mommy, I loved that you came with me to this interview. You gave up so much, you know, you've been part of this dream. And having you here for this interview, I've loved that. And and I just would not have given a shit that she was wearing a clip in her hair. It, it was so, it was like taking her vulnerability about not being part of my world and throwing it at her. And did she, when you said this to her, did she look at you just... She was crumpled. What did you call it? An indirect cruelty? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was a way of getting back at her. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of starting to get ready to say to her, we've got to talk about Charles Zimmerman. But I never got up to it. And you still feel that way? I still feel that way. Mm. I still feel that way. We, we never talked 
and all that I know about Charles Zimmerman because I would have forgiven her. I would have been able to tell her, Mommy, you saved my life. Mm -hmm. I understand. You really wish that you and your mother could have talked about Charlie Zimmerman while she was still alive. And tell me the reason for that. Because he was my father. She erased him. That meant I was fundamentally not okay. There was something wrong with me. Always. It's taught me so many life lessons about just, you know, people say, well, why are you such a partisan of conversation? And I, I always have a quick, fast answer. But this is the long version. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. This is the long form of why, <laughs> of why it's important to, to be honest with people and tell people the story is because the story is never worse than the lie. Right. And, yeah. um, and because we had this lie between us, we could never really have a true relationship. And it, it, it's, it scarred me. It definitely uh, took a toll on me. Yeah. And yeah. It, it meant that our relationship, much of our relationship, much of my hostility wasn't about, you know, the day to day of our relationship. I mean, she was loving. She was funny. We we have a lot in common. I'm really just like her. I mean, I'm, I'm like her in so many ways. I tried to emulate her in so many ways, particularly in this quality she had of just walking towards the light, you know, just trying to, mm-hmm. my mantra of just trying to seize the best in every moment and go towards the positive and try to, you know, reassess what is, what is, how can you move towards the positive now? You know, it's not that you don't acknowledge that bad things have happened or that there has been sadness or mourn what's bad, but how can I move towards the positive now? That was my mm-hmm. mother. But um, we never had this chance to have an honest relationship. Mm. You've written a lot about and study the meaning of objects in our lives, everyday objects. Is there an object of your mother's that you still have or don't have and remember? Yes, I do have an object of my mother's that is so meaningful to me. I'm named after uh, my grandmother's brother, whose name was Sam. This would be her uncle, Sam. And this uncle, Sam, was a pharmacist. He went to Columbia Pharmacy School. Mm. And she named me after him. So Sherry is, she made my Jewish name Shmuela or something, to be Samuel-like in her mind. I was, I was the girl version of Sam. And she always talked to me about this Uncle Sam. And she gave me a ring that he had gotten to her when he had traveled to Thailand. It's silver and black and has a Thai dancer on it. It's not, it's not valuable, but it's, I, I have it. And she loved it. That's amazing. How did your mother's parenting of you affect how you parented your own daughter? 
Well, it would be too facile but very accurate <laughs> to begin with. I put a premium on the truth. If there was bad news, I said, Becca, this is difficult, but I want you to hear this because this is the truth. And I think that was a kind of guidepost for me that I never wanted my daughter to not be sure if what I was telling her was true. And probably I erred a little bit on the side of maybe some difficult truths, but I there was only one. You didn't you didn't get versions from me. All right, I promise this is my last question, which okay. is if you could spend an hour with her now, what what would you want to do? What would you want to say? I would just want to say I'm so sorry. Sorry that she died so young? No, sorry that I didn't appreciate. I mean, in writing this book, I, I learned so much. There's a scene, for example, where she, she gives me a hat and she says, I knit you this hat. And I know she didn't knit me this hat. I know she had bought it. I knew she had bought it at Lambston's. And in my mind, I was, I was eight and I knew she was lying to me. And I was so angry at her. Like, why is my mother lying? She's lying about my father. She's lying about her age. She's lying about her height. And now she's lying about her giving, knitting me a hat. And I, when I wrote this book, I could put together the dates. <clears throat> I'd never seen the dates before. I'd never put it all together. And she just found out that she had cancer. I was eight. And she knew that this was something she would never share with me. And I think she just wanted to feel close to me and give me something. And I think she just went, she just was like coming back from the doctor and stopped the store and bought me this hat and said she had made it for me. I think it was just a gesture of giving me something. And I felt that I just have had these moments of deep understanding of how she tried to reach out to me. And I was critical, and now I can see that she just tried to reach out to me as she could. And I just feel like, from my perspective now, even keeping my father's secret from me, because she was afraid of what he would do to me. This crazy man, she didn't know about treatment or how to keep him in control or what. She was just afraid of him. I just kind of want to say, you know... Thank you. I'm sorry. I forgive you. I love you. I'd like to have a cup of coffee with her, watch a movie with her, get back into bed and eat chicken soup with her. <laughs> I miss my mom. Oh, well, Sherry, on that note, I, I'd like to thank you so much for, for talking with me about your mom, the charismatic Harriet Turkle. Thank you. And that's it this week for Our Mothers Ourselves. Our theme music was composed and performed by Andrea Perry. Paula Mangin is our artist in residence. Our associate producer is Sophie McNulty. And Alice Hudson is the show's producer. Please visit us at ourmothersourselves.com 
and contribute the one word that best describes your mother to the site's mother word cloud. That's OurMothersOurselves.com. Our Mothers Ourselves is a production of Odredex Studios in San Francisco, and I'm your host, Katie Hafner. Stay safe, everyone.